It's a fascinating uh, song, isn't it? Listen to these words. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Now, for those of us who are not uh, poets, um, it would seem that um, shame would uh, be more fitting there because it kind of fits the rhyme pattern. Christ became, took the blame, bore the shame. It's got a rhythm to it. So um, maybe the Gettys uh, were not um, quite firing on all cylinders when they chose rather than shame to put in wrath. But some years ago, many of you will remember, or might remember, that um, there was a group that wanted to actually print this song in their hymn book, and they wanted to improve the poetry, just like I suggested. And so they asked the Gettys, can we do that? And their answer was, no, absolutely no, because it misses the point. The power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. It jars us, our North American sensibilities, but it is worth stopping and reflecting and asking yourself, why is it so important that they kept that expression? The answer to that question will lead you to rejoicing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ here in just a few weeks. Today we'll be looking at um, Genesis chapter 6 as we continue our own um, journey through this season that um, the church traditional church calendar calls Lent. This the, it's the weeks leading up to Easter. And today uh, we've been, we started with uh, Genesis chapter 3 and we moved through uh, the fall of Adam and Eve, and then the, the growing implications and consequences of that in the life of Cain, and then later in the life of Lamech, and then later in the life of his descendants. You will remember that um, soon after that last episode, that was the, whole, the opening of the whole flood account. That's a story you all may uh, remember well. You remember that um, the only, what is the expression, that, uh, excuse me, the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth. I'm a week behind, forgive me, we're going to be looking at 11. Um, the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And so opens the great account of the flood, Noah having found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so they build the ark. Noah and his families are, family are sealed in the ark. Every living thing is destroyed except that which is in the ark. Sort of a let's start over kind of thing. And after that, we have the account of Noah's descendants, nations descending from Noah. And we come today to Genesis chapter 11, forgive me, verses 1 through 9. 
This is the opening of the whole Tower of Babel account. This is the Tower of Babel account. Listen, please. Genesis chapter 11, verses one, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, moving further and further east, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose will now be impo- propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Brothers and sisters, believe it or not, this is the good news of our living God to us as people today. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, we pray that um, you would meet with us. We pray that you would um, bring calm and clarity to my own heart and mind. Father, that you would bring um, receptivity and understanding to our ears. As we look into this, your word, the word of the living God, given to us, your people, who bear the name of your Son. And so, Father, by your Spirit, we pray uh, that you would strengthen us to hear and respond so that you might be glorified and we, your people, may be changed. For we pray it in Jesus. Amen. So you know um, how they go. I have to find them here. You know those old stories, the old um, light bulb stories, the old light bulb jokes. Um, How many accountants does it take to change a light bulb? I'm not going to answer that because we have accountants here. How many many, um, lawyers does it take to change a light bulb? I'm not going to answer that. Those sorts of things. I'm going to ask you, I will ask you one. How many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? Well, it really largely depends upon their tradition. Charismatic Christians takes only one because his hands are already in the air. Bada bing. Pentecostal Christians takes ten. One to change the bulb Nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. Presbyterians? No. No. It takes none. Because the lights will come on and go off according to God's plan. 
Roman Catholics? None. Only use candles. <laughs> Baptists? Our beloved Baptist brothers and sisters? Amen. At least 15, though. One to change the light bulb. Three committees to approve the change and decide who brings the potato salad and fried chicken. Times like this that I really believe that we're Baptists in Presbyterian garb. <laughs> Just saying. Episcopalians, it takes three. One to call the electrician, one to mix the drinks, and one to talk about how much better the old one was. Maybe we're Baptitalian in Presbyterian garb. <laughs> Methodists. It's undetermined because whether your light is bright, dull, or completely out, we love you. You can be a light bulb, a turnip bulb, a tulip bulb, a bald bulb. A church-wide lighting service is planned for Sunday. Please bring a bulb of your choice and a covered dish. Nazarene, six, one woman to replace the bulb while five men review the church lighting policy. <laughs> Maybe we're Baptitalian reams in Presbyterian garb. Lutherans, none. I'm beginning to have an identity crisis here. Because Lutherans don't believe in change. Amish. What's a light bulb? We love, don't you love those jokes? How many this, how many that? Some of you will remember, for some of you, it'll be too long ago. This is in the days of black and white TV. Exactly. Exactly. This is in the days before cable. Yes, this is in the days before actually being able to see the picture. How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop? Uh, that's not what the owl said. The owl said, let me see. One, two, three. But it's a perennial question. It's a stubborn question. This mysterious Tootsie Roll center of the Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop. How many licks does it take? Well, some engineering students at Purdue decided they were going to find out, and so they created a licking machine. I don't want to know more. And it took the machine an average of 364 licks to make it to the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop. The engineers, however, not convinced, thought they would try it themselves. And it took them an average of 252 licks to get to the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop. Not to be outdone, the University of Michigan thought that they would repeat the experiment, and their machine averaged 411 licks to get to the Tootsie Roll Center 
of a Tootsie Roll, Tootsie Pop. And then some middle school students thought they better try it. They didn't create a machine. They just distributed Tootsie Roll, Tootsie Pops to their school. And then they calculated all their results and averaged them out. And it turns out, according to their study, it takes only 144 licks. I think that there's a difference between a middle schooler going after the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop than a college engineering student. These are great questions, and I love those jokes, and they've been around forever, and everyone will listen, and everyone will engage when you are sitting at dinner, and you say, hey, 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 how many lawyers does it take? Hey, 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 how many does it, so-and-so does it take? Because we're always asking that kind of question. How many? How much? How long? Okay, pop quiz. Raise your hand. Oh, no, just shout it out. How many days of school left? What? Too many? Go for it. Eight weeks? How many? Elena? The principal is holding up his hands. Seven weeks, 30 days, 25 days. How many months or weeks left before I graduate? Too many? How many years have you been here? How many years have you been married? These questions we ask all the time. How much do I need to know before I'm an expert in the field? Do I know enough? How much do I need to have saved before I can retire and spend my days playing golf and collecting seashells? The questions themselves are informative as well as the answers, of course. You're just married? Oh, how sweet. Been married seven years? How are you holding up? 20 years. That's wonderful. 40 years? What's the secret? 60 years? Are you kidding me? That is not even possible. Some of these questions are less serious, like light bulb jokes, but some are more crucial. For example, how many roads must one man walk before they call him a man? Thank you, Bob Dylan. How many seas must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? How many times must cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? Is gonna, somebody going to start striking up the guitar and singing along? How many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? How many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? How many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died? Questions of a more serious nature. The passage before us poses a similar question. How many disasters will it take, real or imagined, personal or national, private or public, 
natural or of one's own making, how many disasters will it take before we begin to suspect that maybe we aren't our own? That maybe we aren't the masters of our own fate? That maybe we are not writing our own story, but that we are characters in someone else's story. I'll give you a hint for those of you who are laying hold of that question. The answer, my friend, is not floating in the wind. It's there for the hearing, for those of us who have ears to hear. The theme of our, our, our cultural hero in our culture, our hero is, the, is one who has no time for such questions because they are so busy picking themselves up after being knocked down. They're so busy pulling themselves up sola bootstrapsa. Our cultural hero is one who has no time for such questions like weebles. Our cultural heroes wobble, but they don't fall down. Like Bozo, the punching clown, no matter how many times you punch it and knock it to the ground, it bounces right back up. That's strength. That's wisdom. That's heroic. But what makes for a great toy or perhaps even a great Clint Eastwood or Jason Bourne movie rarely makes for wise living. How many disasters will it take? before we begin to suspect that our own wisdom and our begin to suspect our own wisdom and entertain the possibility that we are not masters of our own fate that we do not own our good name and that they belong to another entertaining such a possibility is the beginning of the beginning of wisdom because it is the first step in a lifelong project of being disentangled from the web we've woven, from our own suspicion together with Adam and Eve, and our own accusation together with the spirit of Cain, and our own misjudgment of God's goodness, wisdom, and trustworthiness together with Lamech. The story here in front of us, the story of Babel, establishes the fact that heirs to the spirit of Cain and Lamech that we are, and quite contrary to our highest and noblest aspirations, we are naturally masters of our own disasters and in desperate need of some merciful intervention beyond our imagination simply to survive. It takes some repeating for us to begin to entertain this possibility because we are convinced in the light of the lie of our own wisdom. And that is why this passage appears at the end of the second cycle in which this theme is being established. That by the lie that Adam and Eve received and believed we now have a habit of suspecting God's goodness. We have a habit of accusing God of being unfair and unkind. And we have a habit of exalting ourselves to replace Him as rulers and judge of our own life 
and in many cases, the lives of those around us. And it takes two cycles because this is one of the important parts of having the flood in the middle of this. Because the Lord says, remember back there in in chapter uh, 6, So the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I'm going to blot them out. I'm going to erase the slate. I'm going to start over. And that's so often how we read the flood account. But we fail to notice That prior to that, he said that the wickedness of man was great and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's pretty comprehensive. And it includes Noah. And so, believing as we do that our, that our, um, that the disasters that come upon us are someone else's fault or the fault of, our, of circumstances beyond our control, we think, fantastic, if we can erase the slate and start over clean, then we'll be good to go. But despite the flood, the spirit of Cain and Lamech lives. Why? Because it's DNA the DNA of Cain's spirit, the DNA of Lamech's spirit, rests and hides in the folds of our very heart. It's not in our circumstances. It's not in the people around us. And this is the most difficult part of the gospel of our Father's great love for us to grasp. It must be established for us repeatedly, every day, in every circumstances. In every circumstance, more often than not, we find ourselves trying to make sense of and sort through difficult situations. More often than not, when we find ourselves trying to make sense of and sort through difficult situations, if we examine our own hearts for evidence of the spirit of Cain and Lamech playing out in the circumstances in which we find ourselves, we will have made great progress in finding the resolution to the disaster in which we find ourselves. So look at our passage. There's a structure here. The whole earth is in view at the very beginning. As a people migrated, they established themselves a plain and listen to what they say. Let us let us make bricks, let us burn them thoroughly. Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top to heavens. Let us build a tower. And then later in the passage, we find the Lord um, coming down, dispersing them from there over the face of the earth so that they leave off building the city, building the tower. So you have people building the tower. You have people being um, the tower plan coming to an end. You have them saying to themselves, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed. And at the end of the passage, we find, in fact, that's exactly what is happening to them. They are dispersed over the face of all the earth. Their name no longer famous, but now infamous. Infamous. 
want to look at that a little bit more closely. Look at that passage, verse uh, 4. What is their goal? What is their stated purpose? Let us make a name for ourselves. You understand that this notion of name throughout Scripture, most particularly in the Old Testament, is the, is the, the glory, the legacy by which someone will be known. Let us make ourselves known. Let us make knowledge of ourselves lasting so that everyone know, will know how wonderful we are. Lest, second part there, we be dispersed or lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they're wanting to build themselves a great name and they're wanting to secure it. To establish it. Put down roots so that it will be lasting. You can see in there their fear, their distrust, their, their quest for security. After all, looking around, they know it's a big and frightening world out there. But I want you to notice this. How the stated purpose has, itself is rooted in that original lie. Believing, as the lie taught us to believe, that God is not good, that God is not generous, that God is not fair, that God is not kind, that God is not worthy, we must fend for ourselves. We must take the reins. We must accomplish our dreams. So think, for example, think for a while. How is it that our purposes for our day, our purposes for our week, our purposes for our month, our purposes for any given year, our purposes for our career, our purposes for marriage, our purposes for family. We think about those things. Do you notice how they generally tend to run exactly the opposite of God's good, wise, and trustworthy design? So some of us encounter this by saying, I'm going to be a great architect, or I want to be a great this. I want to really make a difference. I want to leave my mark. Some of us recognize it as we enter into later ages of life and we begin to realize that the thing for which I have been aiming, the thing for which I have been working, as noble as it may have sounded, was all about me. All about my glory. All about my significance. All about my standing. All about my reputation. It runs exactly the opposite of God's design and commission. For you see, God's design, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, God's design is having made us in His image to bear the glory of His name as men and women is to make it famous, be fruitful, multiply, go, 
fill the earth with the glory and the wonder of my name. The glory of which in which the glory in which you've been made. Creatures of the living God. God's commission. God's design is that we bear the name. God's commission is that we be fruitful, we multiply, and we fill. In contrast to that, our design is to bear our own name, as our forefathers say here, to make our own name great, to establish our legacy. Our commission, our mission in life is to secure the home front, isn't it? To secure our place, to circle the wagons, to build our financial security first and foremost. If anything is left after that, well, then we will give generously from what is left over. But I have been around long enough to know that when the structures of my heart and mind are that way, I rarely have anything left over. Because my needs are voracious and my wants are voracious. So what dreams have you adopted and adapted from our culture which are rooted in the lie and how would those dreams change or be even rooted out and discarded if you recognized they were rooted in the lie namely that our God cannot be trusted Our God does not have your good in mind. If you want to know, for example, what some of those might be, think about what worries you, what wakes you up in the middle of the night, what frightens you. What do you find yourself anxious about, parents? (laughs) Parents of young ones, what do you find yourself anxious about? Parents of teenagers, what do you find yourself anxious about? Do you find yourself wondering if you'll ever, ever actually make your mark in the world? And so we build our plans upon our purposes. Notice what they say. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. And the idea was that they were going to build this tower with its top into the heavens. These guys, they were going to storm the gates of heaven. They were going to secure for themselves a great name in the cosmos. You remember, some of you who are familiar with ancient ways of war, that an enemy, when they would lay siege to a city that was walled about, they would build these huge ramps up the side of the wall. And then once the ramp was completed, they would run up the side of the hill and breach the walls and so take over the city. And there's something of that going on here. Come, let us build this huge ramp right into the heavens and we can storm the heavens. 
and we can seize from those mean old gods what they're keeping from us. Eternal life, eternal security, eternal glory. And so it is that you and I, having believed the lie together with Adam and Eve and Cain and Lamech, we set out to build our own towers, to build our own lives, to build our own careers. Whatever it is, seeking to make a difference, seeking to build a career, seeking to establish financial security. Strangely, giving ourselves in service to others, what do I possibly mean by that? It's a tricky one. It's a slippery one. But it's a common one because we think this way. If I can just get them to change and to be better, then it will make my name great. It's a slippery one. The lie is slippery, isn't it? So what plans have you put, are you putting in place? What plans are you pursuing and executing even now? What towers are you building to make a name for yourself? To avoid being scattered beyond what you know and are comfortable with? It's important to note that there's not a problem with building cities. It's important to note that it's not bad to build towers. It's, it's important to note that it's not bad uh, to fashion bricks and put them together. Those are good things as part of culture, whether God-glorifying culture or god not glorifying culture. But what is the problem then? The problem goes all the way back to the heart of the matter because as our dear friend used to say, what? The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Our problem is that contrary to our deepest convictions, and the lies that the culture, culture around us tells us and the culture within us tells us. We are not masters of our own fate. Notice this, verse 5. The Lord comes down and he confounds their plans so that their goal to build Babel this gateway to heaven, as the word means, becomes a, a word in Hebrew that sounds the same, which means confusion. You see, God takes our plans, totally reorders them to accomplish His purposes. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever set out one week with a particular plan and it go completely different than what you expected? To find that something else entirely unexpected and unimagined has been accomplished? Maybe that happens in the week. Maybe that happens in the year. Maybe that happens in your 
life. It's the story of my life. Mako and I love to tell the story of um, our getting married because everything that she dreamt about marriage was not me. And everything I dreamt about marriage was not how it's unfolded. It was her, though. That part was true. And so it raises the question in the minds of people when we, when we, when we tell the story. Well, that doesn't, that's got to be horribly disappointing. Well, yes. If our hope and our purpose is the fulfillment of our plans. But what if our marriage is not our marriage? What if it belongs to someone else who is doing something for his greater glory and for a good that Mako and I cannot imagine? Then it's not disappointing. Then it's exhilarating. Didn't expect that. That's pretty amazing. as difficult as the unexpected may be. If you ever want to discover, for example, the limits of your love, most of us get married because we think we're really loving people, and then we get married, and we discover we're not. Most of us really believe we're pretty patient, we're pretty forgiving, I've actually heard these things. I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty patient guy. I'm a pretty forgiving woman. Consider ourselves relatively wise. And then the Lord says, here, have a child. Amen. Some of you heard last week, um, Will, I'm calling you out, sorry about that. Will, a story during testimony time about how um, absolutely opposed she was in her inner being to having children in general and a daughter in particular. That's crazy, she said. That's not how she said it. And the story is what an amazing testimony of God's power, of God's wisdom to do in her and among her as a family. What she could never have imagined you stand in awe. Right? That's what we're talking about. We are not masters of our fate because we will make a disaster of our fate. Naturally, we are masters of our own disasters. So where is the hope in that? Well, our hope is that the Lord is always watching, is always invested, is always interested, and always attentive and so he comes down. Verse 5, he comes down. You remember, this is just the way of the Lord. He created man in order to walk with them and talk with them and have fellowship with them in the garden. And in the, in the moments immediately following the, um, Eve, Adam and Eve's sin, what happens? The Lord comes to them as he always does because he's the Lord of steadfast love. And so it is here. The Lord comes. What's going on here? What are you doing? 
But you also remember, notice this, that as a part of God's great love for Adam and Eve in the wake of their foolishness and rebellion, what does he do? He sends them out of the garden and he places a guard at the tree of life. Why? Because if they were to lay hold of the tree of life, while in this state of unresolved rebellion against him, they would cement their eternal destruction. What a merciful and loving God. That despite their self-evident guilt and rebellion against him, he wants to protect them and preserve their life. And so it is here. The tower is being built so that they can, if you will, um, storm the city, storm the gates of heaven, storm into the presence of God to lay hold of this tree of life. And God says, no, that will, that will destroy you. You cannot do this. I love you too much. And so it is again that quite contrary to our expectations and quite in, in such a way that absolutely confounds us, our Lord functions in our world, in our plans, in our purposes to preserve us from ourselves. And so it is here. Our hope is that the Lord knows very well what we are up to, whether we, we know that he knows that or not. That he loves us too much to let our foolish plans, plans formulated without awareness or appreciation for the love of the Father, to allow our foolish plans to reach their logical end because their logical end is our absolute eternal destruction. And that's why John says, for God so loved the world that was in rebellion against him that he sent his son. To preserve us, to save us, to rescue us. Our quest to break into the throne room of God will always end in our confusion and our consternation. This week, uh, the New Yorker ran, who's famous for its cartoons, ran this little single frame cartoon. And it, and it showed this man uh, stranded on an island, just on this little island, and just water as far as the eye can see. And arising up out of the water and circling around over top of his head and descending back into the water is a ski lift. And leaning against the pole of the ski lift are the man's skis. It seems that he had ridden the ski lift up to the top of the mountain in the hopes of getting a really good run only to turn around and find that the floods had risen. There was no skiing to be done. He had ridden the ski lift to his own disaster and to his own destruction. Perhaps fleeing, as we often do, from our own foolishness. 
I think of the rich young ruler. Why is it that Jesus' response confounded him and confused him and left him sad? Well, because Jesus' response made no sense to him, given his purpose and his plan for accomplishing that. To do what Jesus said meant that he would have to actually go about dismantling this tower, dismantling the city he had spent a lifetime building. That makes no sense. Unless we know who Jesus is. The one come down from heaven to make his dwelling among us. The one who came to set in our midst a table. So that we may, in fact, through him, enter into and taste of the tree of life, having been made new and having been made alive. Brothers and sisters, we are not masters of our own fate. We are masters of our own disasters. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who comes and he takes the mess that we have made And he makes it into something entirely new and unimaginable. That is our hope. And so, Father, we come and we ask that even as you have hinted in this, your word, in the repetition of this theme, that you would grant us courage to actually hear you speak and to acknowledge the truth of what you say that as high and as noble as we may imagine our aspirations to be, yet they are empty if they are not built upon the foundation that is ours in Jesus Christ. So grant us the courage to lay aside plans that are not built there and build upon him, being fixed on him, being lashed to him by your spirit. For we pray it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.